Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the American Reformer Podcast. You've got Josh Abitoy here, uh, Executive Director, and I'm joined tonight, a slight uh, shift of gears. I am joined by Timon Klein. Timon is, is an associate editor with American Reformer, and uh, we're happy to have him here. Welcome, Timon. Thanks, Josh. Happy to be here filling in for Ben. Yes, Ben is uh, out in the wind this week and will return uh, next week uh, to restore order and uh, <laughs> his, uh, I guess, King Charles uh, fandom. Um, but uh, in the meantime, time, and we're going to uh, talk a little bit about Twitter, uh, talk a little bit about uh, seed oils and Southern Baptists, and then talk a little <laughs> bit about um, uh, the fascist who's running Florida. So, That's right. Um, okay, well, let's let's kick it off. Time in. Um, you've been uh, complaining incessant to me, incessantly to me over text and just before we got on the show here about uh, a tweet uh, that uh, a senator from my state uh, posted. Uh, what's what's got your craw? Yeah. So so let's yeah let's talk Twitter. What's, there's nothing else to talk about. Um, so Ted Cruz decides to tweet. Um, just yesterday, today's the 30th, this was on the 29th, um, he was commenting on a New York Times headline about a new um, law that was signed in Uganda that criminalizes homosexuality with um, either the death penalty or uh, life imprisonment, and then even the attempt or solicitation of um, homosexual relations would would at least get a decade in prison. So quite quite severe um, in its in its punishment. And so Ted Cruz says, uh, this Uganda law is horrific and wrong. Any law criminalizing homosexuality or imposing the death penalty for aggravated homosexuality, which is the phrase the law uses, is grotesque and an abomination. All, capital all, civilized nations should join together in condemning this human rights abuse. And he finishes with hashtag LGBTQ. Um, and in fact, the Biden administration has threatened to sanction Uganda for uh, this grotesque abomination, as Ted Cruz calls it. Now, I assume many people were still surprised. It's hard to be surprised these days, but surprised at Ted Cruz's response, uh, quite quite vehement response, um, because this is the same Ted Cruz. I mean, I was just recently rewatching. I don't know if you caught that TV series from the 2015 and 2016, so Republican primary and then, and then general election on Showtime called The Circus. Um, but it just followed those campaigns back then. I remember a scene with Ted Cruz in the Iowa caucus, you know, in a barn, very, you know, sleeves rolled up with a Rick Perry introducing him and he's got his flannel on and he quotes, you know, second Chronicles 714 to the crowd. And that's, you know, he's doing, he's doing the whole, whole Republican kind of shtick Bush style. And, you know, presumably if, if the, you know, he believes in second Chronicles, you'd have to look at, you know, Leviticus 18 and 20 or Romans one or first Corinthians six um, to justify this sort of biblical ethic for the nation that he was then appealing to for, for votes. Um, so it's kind of surprising because I think that's the image Ted Cruz has, has tried to paint for himself, that he would respond in this in this way. Um, and maybe what it signals, you can tell me what you think about this, is a 
you know, this, this harkens back a little bit to you and Ben's last episode talking about James Lindsay. Um, this signals a, a, on the right generally, maybe not the new right, maybe not the hard right, but the, the right generally, and Ted Cruz is certainly situated there, a, a certain softening on, you know, the gay issue. Post Obergefell, it's as if this is um, a dead letter. There's no reason to even debate it anymore. And not only is there no reason to debate it, but in fact, we should uh, adamantly support it, right? And, and this, at least rhetorically, yeah. I don't know, you know, if Ted Cruz is take any any particular action in the United States to do, or in his own state to do anything about this. Um, and it's and it's just curious that you know he treats this as a grotesque abomination for all civilized nations when, as you know, Josh, the uh, you know sodomy laws perhaps not as severe. The sodomy laws were alive and well in America until 1962 in all 50 states, culminating in Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, which um, you know put the nail in the coffin for the last handful of states, including Ted Cruz's state, to have such laws in the books. Uh, however enforced they they were vigorously, you know, is, is an open question. Um, but I would just note that if if we were to go back to the the founding era, you know, Ted Cruz might be wanting to send uh, the the illustrious liberal Thomas Jefferson as a diplomat to Uganda to talk some sense to them to take it down from life imprisonment or death uh, to castration. So that would be the standard, you know, at the time. So he's he's really in, in right, right, a large. Can we pause there for a second? Yeah, I mean, we got to we got to pause there for a second. So, so Thomas Jefferson, he literally he was a he was a, a liberal humanitarian at the time of the founding, and his his very progressive and enlightened solution was sodomy should be punished with castration. Is that that's right? This this would okay. be in 1778, uh, a bill for proportioning crimes and punishments, and he that's where he introduces this to the Virginia legislature. So, a very enlightened position at the time. You know, um, but the, the point is, you know, Ted Cruz, who, who, of course, also calls himself a constitutionalist and quotes the founders as much as he does the Bible, um, is is out of step with this opinion is certainly at this level um, with a large swath of American history, very recent American history. I mean, in Joe Biden's lifetime. And it, it's just curious for not so much Ted Cruz uh, himself, but the, the right generally and where where this is going. So do you do you see a shift or a you know, a, a backpedaling in this, re- this regard post 2015? Yeah, without question. Um, the, the funny thing, when we certainly saw that from more, um, you know, the Bush wing of the Republican Party, um, mm-hmm. you know, Cruz, at least in 2015 and 16, was sort of distinguished by his willingness to resist Obergefell in part. Um, you know, he, he, um, he's previously situated himself on the sort of the strict constitutionalist end of the court, um, who would, you know, rail against Obergefell and Roe and all of these other recent cases. And, you know, we should say like, you know, this recent, um, tweet isn't necessarily inconsistent with a position that, that Obergefell should be overturned, but it's, it's a, it's an interesting signal, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's also a signal. I mean, Cruz has always, I think, been um, pretty libertarian um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of how he approaches social issues. Uh, you know, so I wasn't I wasn't necessarily shocked to see this. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think uh, it, it's an interesting, you know, the, the, you know, complaining about the Uganda law, you know, uh, 
fine, whatever. Maybe that feels like, you know, you're in the middle of the American political fairway. Um, but, but the inclusion of the LGBTQ hashtag in the tweet was what really kind of raised eyebrows. It's just like, what? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, he's signaling his allyship. I mean, I, I don't think they're going to be like lining up to uh, admit him into the, uh, the club necessarily, <laughs> but uh, he's attempting to say, I'm an ally too, guys. Um, and so that, that was an interesting signal. Um, you know, I, th- I think the really interesting aspect of this is, is that he's calling a sodomy law an abomination. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the I, I, now I'm not a dispensationalist, but even, you know, and Ted Cruz <laughs> goes to a dispensationalist church uh, down there in Houston. But I think even they would have a hard time um, saying that, like, the Mosaic law was an abomination. I mean, yeah. you know, maybe you yeah. say it's for a different time, different place, not applicable anymore. But how you get, yeah. what theological framework gets you to calling like God's divine law to the Israel Israelite people right. an abomination? Um, right. You know that. Uh, yeah. So, so, so that's interesting. Um, and then I think tying it back to the discussion with James, I, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if there's any connection. I don't know if, you know, maybe there's these like secret backroom meetings going on somewhere where like James Lindsay and Ted Cruz and others are, you know, talking about um, how we have to be like uh, signaling our allyship. Otherwise, you know, the dialectic is going to swing against us. I I don't know, but, but um, you know, I I think it's a, actually, I think it's a tactical error um, because I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing tremendous, and let's drop a pin in this. I want to return, but the 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 logic of uh, gender ideology, queer theory, is really starting to um, get to an extreme place where uh, you're actually seeing a lot of buy-in for political backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, and 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 you know, I guess one way you could take that is say, well. Um, you know, that's great. Let's politically focus on the extremes, like the most extreme stuff. Let's not let minors get castrated, you know, or, or whatever. Let's make sure we stop pedophilia. Or you could take this political energy and say, let's rethink like the fork in the road that we took 50 years ago that got us to where we are today. And, you know, um, James and, and, you know, Cruz, I think are kind of squarely situating themselves in this camp of, uh, you know, uh, reject modernity, return to tradition with tradition being like, you know, social consensus in 2013 or 2015. Right. Like, yeah, I saw, I saw a great, a great, uh, tweet by eighth century woodchipper that was like, think of your, Think of your most liberal acquaintance in 2013, and Ted Cruz is now indistinguishable from that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it is. It is very like. So, in that sense, you could even say, you know, whatever side of the the line you fall on, you're behind the times. Like each constituency has moved significantly. On the left, they're they're way beyond. I mean, talking about you know, gay rights is like boring at this point. I mean, it's so it's so yeah. far behind and then on the nascent kind of new right it's it's uh full of people that are at at bare minimum are fed up with having this stuff crammed down their throats um and at a sort of maximal level it's people who have recognized what you've said if if there's 
you don't want to recreate the conditions that got you to where you are today. And we're recognizing those conditions to be the pretty, you know, easy kind of acceptance of the L and the, the G, right? And, and I guess the B as well. Um, that, that that wasn't all that, you know, didn't put up too much of a fight. And then as soon as it was over, it was over. Um, and there's not even talk of, of, you know, addressing that again. And, um, you know, I don't really know what the, what work the Q does, but the T is, is the main thing now. And that's James Lindsay's, you know, meme. Um, and they want to distinguish this very sharply as if one is evidently morally insane and the other one is, uh, you know, eminently reasonable. Um, so they've, they've set up, yeah. if you want to talk about dialectics, uh, that's a, that's a great demonstration of the, the operation of a cultural dialectic. Well, and let's just say like, it's their view of the world is hilarious. Like all of civilization got it wrong. And then for this brief, <laughs> tiny little moment from like 20, from like 2000 until 2015 or whatever, we basically got it right. And now we've gone too far. Like, like right. they're, they're like the ideal world, the utopia, it existed for a while. It existed for this like 15 years stretch. That's like 10 years behind where we are now. Which, uh, you know, a total flash in the pan for us. Um, but it right. makes sense with people like Ted Cruz, you know, not so much uh, James Lindsay, although it makes sense with him for different ideological reasons, but older, you know, national review conservatives, compassionate conservatives, whatever they're called, that was their era of, of ascendancy and dominance. And they, you know, were loving life um, back then. And the rest of us are over it and have, have seen that it's, uh, it wasn't quite um, the, the beautiful thing they, they sold it to us to be. Um, so they're, they're, you know, in some ways nostalgic or maybe even uh, deluded and, and still living in that kind of world. So it makes sense that if that was the if that was Nirvana for a 15 year period, um, that, that Ted Cruz would have some affinity for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, well, hey, yeah. speaking of behind the times, uh, <laughs> let's let's uh, transition to speaking about Chick-fil-A. Um, let's do it. So uh, Chick-fil-A, um, th- this is uh, – and guys, by the way, if you can't tell already, this show is like a news roundup, virality-driven, Twitter-driven episode. So, you know, just buckle <laughs> up. Um, Chick-fil-A hilariously made the rounds on Twitter yesterday because uh, – maybe this morning. Somebody discovered that they have a DEI office and a DEI officer who's a C-suite uh, employee – and, uh, you know, has been putting out some, some messaging. And this, uh, this has been the case for quite some time, why it was di- just discovered now. I'm not exactly sure why or why it was brought up. Perhaps, perhaps it's because DEI has actually become a very political issue. There's states that are now banning DEI at their public institutions. And I would say a lot of, like, good savvy has developed around recognizing how DEI offices are often um, – they become uh, centers for uh, essentially revolutionaries within corporations to uh, cause problems and, and sort of bend the organizations to their will by making demands uh, that are uh, couched in the language of diversity. So there's like good, good institutional savvy on the right has really risen up in the last couple of years to, um, I would say, um, Try, try to excise these sorts of functions from public institutions that are under red state control. Um, our friend Scott Yenner has uh, been uh, very, very involved in uh, Florida and Texas and elsewhere in, in advising on some of these laws. 
Um, and, uh, you know, Texas just passed one uh, yesterday. So, so sort of an interesting conjunction, you know, the, the stalwart conservative Southern Baptist Chicken Company is in the news for having a DEI office. And meanwhile, the entire state of Texas is banning DEI from its public institutions. Um, how did we get here? Uh, so, so that's an interesting question. So um, Chick-fil-A, I mean, you, you know, we've all known Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, it's uh, progressive cities. San Antonio tried to stop Chick-fil-A from opening a restaurant in their city limits because they were contrary to the values that the San Jose City Council, you know, held about about people. Um, time in when I was in law school, and this was kind of in the lead up to Obergefell, I was a member of the Federalist Society, and we uh, we were pretty religious about getting Chick Fil A for our for our catered lunches. You know, we would do we would have a speaker come in and we'd feed everybody a free lunch to get people to come, and we almost always gave Chick Fil A. And it was kind of transgressive. And, and, you know, this is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So you've got to go a ways to get to a Chick-fil-A. Like this is not, <laughs> we had to make an effort. Um, you know, Chick-fil-A is not, you know, uh, they don't have a location on campus or anything. You know, you've got to travel. Um, but, but we would, you know, send somebody out to drive it out and get it and bring it in. And, uh, you know, we'd have some, some steaming hot, you know, chicken sandwiches and, uh, and listen to some like, you know, uh, dissident perspectives, you know, there in kind of the belly of a pretty woke institution. And we just, you know, it was a lot of fun. We loved it. You know, Chick-fil-A stood for something and it was kind of an act of defiance, you know, to be in that club and carrying your Chick-fil-A sandwiches into the lecture hall. And, you know, why were they, why were they so, why did they have such a target? I mean, really they've been big Republican donors. They were vocal on, uh, on some of the marriage battles they uh, gave to prop eight and, you know, other, marriage related causes and uh they just became target number one yes they are sabotarian although that's never really gotten them to be in the target i mean that's right, never been right. a, that's never been a driver but but no, yeah they all, are. in fact they, it's always yeah. a source of immense frustration for me actually well you should be <laughs> happy as a good uh sabbatarian <laughs> yourself that you're not tempted to buy you know it's true it's true from them on sunday no that's um, right so so um yeah, but they're they're visibly Christian, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and you know this this actually subtly started to change. Uh, much to my, it, let me finish saying all the great stuff about Chick Fil A and how they used to be. So they, I went to a Southern Baptist college for undergrad, and Chick Fil A had a partnership with them, and they would bring out, they would hire like several graduates every year, um, who would then go on to become like location managers and. You know, they had this like pipeline of, you know, they were big givers to the school I went to. Um, they really leaned into not just their Christian identity, but their Southern Baptist identity. They were, I mean, they, they run a great business. Uh, they have a good yeah. product, notwithstanding the seed oils. And they, um, they, they actually, with their giving and with their corporate practices, they actually really blessed a lot of Christian institutions. Yep. And most notably, like they were major contributors to Salvation Army and to FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. In 2019, after I, I don't know why there was another controversy about this, but there was, they were again had a cancellation campaign and they caved and they stopped giving money to um, to Salvation Army and FCA and really any other organization that had like a um, traditional moral code in its employment practices, right? Mm-hmm. So 
so so that was like the first warning sign and then you know um their ceo i think in 2020 like did some pretty cringe stuff with uh the sort of blm activists and in in his area and then i guess at some point in the last couple years like under a you know when nobody was looking maybe they didn't do a press release but they created a dei office and hired a dei officer so um you know i say behind the times uh you know a lot of actually some big organizations are currently cutting their dei officers um because Mm -hmm. the, the funny thing about a dei officer like you get hired by a corporation your mandate is to improve um i guess it's to improve diversity outcomes but really what that means is like you have to constantly be demonstrating that there's a problem in the organization exactly. yeah. that needs your well, fixing. One, if you yeah. remember too, I mean, the, the it, it somewhat predates DEI, not exactly. Um, but it, I mean, I remember in like 2015, 16, 17, I think the Harvard Business Review, you know, released a, a pretty controversial article and study saying that, you know, in fact, DEI or diversity type initiatives at the corporate level were counterproductive for the ends that they proposed. Right. Like, so you had this thing, you know, they, they weren't working. In fact, it was like the force feeding effect was, was activating bias or something like that. And so then yeah. they needed to, you know, this big soul searching. And, and, and so then there was the new genesis of, of what we now more readily recognize as DEI offices. So before that you had, you know, some kind of diversity initiatives, I always kind of think of like, you know, the office episode or something like where it's just cringe mm-hmm. and hilarious. And then, you know, something got much more aggressive. Um, and as you say, to at the, it coincides with generally uh, a sort of discourse in America saying this, this problem is systemic, it's massive, you know, it's really, really big and important. Um, so that sets all, that, that's just to back what you were saying. But I, th- I think that's exactly right as you, you're constantly there's a sense in which everyone at the corporate level is constantly justifying their own job, but perhaps DEI people, especially considering how well they're paid, are the, are the sort of kings of of, uh, of that function. Yeah, and, and it's different than, you know, when you justify your other job, oftentimes the job relates to sort of essential business functions. And so, you, you know, you're engaging in more like uh, puffery of what you might do or, you know, something like that, right? If you're a general counsel, your job is managing risk, legal risk. And so you, uh, you want to make the risks seem really big and, you know, oh man, you guys could just, if you don't have me reviewing every jot and tittle of every contract, like you just, right. you know, you'd sell the house, you know, right. and, and, you know, if you're the CFO, the same and, and so on. Um, but in the case of DEI, it's like, you know. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, who, who knows, right? Who knows? I mean, the, the methodology <laughs> is essentially like, um, you know, let's look at the employee rosters and, you know, depending on the demographics, we need to totally change our hiring practices. And then, you know, and then we need to have these like struggle sessions and, and you know, I guess in the more rigorous versions, they try to like measure outcomes. Um, but, right. you know, it, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean the 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 cause. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of studies about this. I mean, they, they basically they create hostility, suspicion between coworkers. They, right. um, you know, create a lot of resentment, and they make teams less productive. And, and right. DEI, I, I actually, 
it's it's at once it's it's more radical than prior iterations but it's also like it represents like sort of a it's a suit and tie version of the of the cringeworthy diversity initiatives in the 90s <laughs> like it's <laughs> got an acronym it's diversity equity inclusion it's backed with studies which i think are bunk but it is backed with studies about how it makes your teams more effective and it, right. it's like it's it's at once both like very radical and transformational of your organization but also it comes wearing a suit and tie and saying like you know basically this is best practice and if you don't do it you're a neanderthal but right. it seems right. like the evidence is now coming back that um you know they're not really helping the bottom line and and right. that's you know, businesses uh, especially if there's a little economic uncertainty or whatever else uh you learn pretty quick who actually is uh you know, uh, carrying water for the company and who isn't. And right. so, you know, as we go through an economic tightening or uncertain period, um, no surprise at all to see these offices getting uh, scaled back or, you know, sometimes maybe they're demoted, right? They, they're like, put, you know, demote them down to like a, they report to the HR director or something right, like that, right. like get them out of the C-suite. Um, because that's the well, other this, thing. I mean, you, you know, these, yeah. these, positions are often C-suite positions. So, yeah. you know, your DEI officer is literally sitting in the room with your chief financial officer, your general counsel, your chief operating officer, and your CEO. Mm -hmm. Well, th but this is interesting. And maybe you were, I mean, you, you flagged this already that this, this may have been, someone just found it recently, right? To, at least to the extent that it went viral with Chick-fil-A. And it may have existed or been around longer than everyone noticed, but it, but it seems that they're latecomers to adopting this. And if you yeah. have all this, um, you know, we're, we're entering a, a more uncertain time. A lot of major corporations are even dialing back on the investment in this side of things. You know, what's, what is the, the, the possible impetus for Chick-fil-A to be a latecomer and to say, Oh, now, you know, now is the time because I definitely see, you know, general DEI efforts across the board as being, you know, more or less what, what Bud Light just did, right? It's a total PR campaign to try to tap into something. They're not, I always find it hard to believe that the the other C-suite members, executives actually think it's going to help the bottom line, except insofar as it may gain them certain constituencies, prestige and, and popularity. Yeah, um, I think it's. Uh, <laughs> I think that oftentimes it's like a box checking exercise, and you're being told by somebody you trust or some, you know, you read it in Harvard Business Review or whatever that it's a best practice to have a DEI officer now, and that it's going to mm -hmm. improve your business operations. And I, I hate to say it, but like at some level, like that's kind of the level at which, the, at which these decisions get made, and. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of an, oh, all your peers are doing it. So, you know, if you don't do it, you're kind of sticking out. It's a safe choice. You know, nobody's going to get fired or laughed at for not having, for, 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 uh, for hiring a DEI officer. At least that was the assumption. Um, but doesn't and, that make uh, it all the weirder for Chick-fil-A, Chick which is like you were laying out all the good things, you know, that we kind of think about Chick-fil-A, distinguishing themselves is at least not really caring um, about the, these softer sorts of standards of acceptability and, and peership. So why, uh, why now? 
Well, again, I mean, I, I said I opened this up with uh, speaking of behind the times. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> that uh, I think that they were never going to be a first adopter anyways. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, they came in kind of at the back end of, uh, you know, sort of the mass adoption. So, you know, that they're it's trailing and then, you know, and then they've probably got some like lingering, you know, just guilt issues. I mean, they've got close Southern Baptist affiliations. Well, you know, they should feel some guilt about that and they need to do something to make that up. Um, I, I wouldn't doubt at all that that's part of the psychology of what's going on. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and let, let's keep in mind too here, there was a generational transfer at Chick-fil-A from Truett Cathy to uh, Dan Cathy and, and, um, you know, I, I think uh, the the information, the results are coming in on Dan, and he's clearly um, a lot more sort of accommodationist. And you know, I, th- I think Dan, you know, I, well, I, I think Dan Kathy, you know, wants to basically float along with social consensus, pretty much keep it in the middle of the fairway. You know, um, so if if most people have a DEI officer, he'll hire a DEI officer. You know. Mm-hmm. What have you thought thought about the um, you know the general reaction um, from again just to circle back to our very normy maybe we can even now say Ted Cruz adjacent or aligned conservative commentators um, you know I just I just saw you know Eric Erickson and David French kind of tag teaming this issue and basically telling everybody you know it's not worth another another boycott or actually caring that much you know look here they still say that their corporate purpose is to glorify god um you know what are you going to do boycott everybody um you know this this kind of you could call it defeatist or you could just call it um sort of above the fray uh mentality that they want to maintain um so that they have they they also maintain their spot in the sort of um socio-political hierarchy I, you know, I haven't been watching the reactions. Doesn't surprise me at all um, that David French would, you know, endorse this. Uh, Eric Erickson, that's a little bit, uh, you know, that that's a little disappointing. Um, it, it, I, I would say, like, actually, Chick Fil A has been betraying its loyal customer base for several years. I mean, especially the decision to pull funding from Salvation Army and FCA. They should have been, they should have been destroyed over that. I mean, really, like they, I mean, they have been, they have so much goodwill from conservative Christians who will go out of their way to stop and buy a chicken sandwich from a company that used to kind of stand for their values publicly. And they still benefit from that to a great degree. And it's not earned, it's not deserved anymore. And so I think it, I think there's an interesting case to be made that, um, that conservatives should, should pull back a little bit from Chick-fil-A. You know, I, I don't, I, you want to call for a boycott, have at it. We're, we're having a, we're in like the, a renaissance of boycotting. I mean, this is, this is tremendous fun. I mean, uh, but you know, Anheuser-Busch is in the tanks right now and targets, targets hurting, um, I, I think boycotting is is great um, if if you've got a reasonable likelihood of success, um, it, you know. But I don't I, I don't know you know on on that point you know I'm not sure that people are going to get 
worked up enough about a DEI office at Chick-fil-A to really significantly change their consumer habits. You know, this viscerally doesn't have the same. I mean, if they go full, you know, if they if tomorrow they enlist Dylan Mulvaney, I think that would probably do it because the the visual, (laughs) the optics are like just so obvious and in your face, you know, humiliation is the point kind of deal of like the there's not a single average Bud Light drinker or Chick-fil-A eater that that identifies with Dylan Mulvaney. But, you know, I did I did see a this is to plug something that maybe at. American Reformer, maybe future podcast or articles will be, be talked about more. You know, I did read an interesting piece today in the Daily Mail that was a former Anheuser-Busch executive talking about how, you know, all of that with the Mulvaney, um, you know, we could say certainly failed uh, marketing campaign um, was driven by ESG standards from, you know, not even just the corporate level, but the banking level on down, yeah, and that that explains a lot of a lot of this activity. So I'd just be very curious to see, you know, how much um, Chick Fil A, even just as a corporation. I you know you talked about you know the line of succession and those changes make sense culturally for an organization. They that always happens, but even you know the, their responsiveness to what do you want to say the big three you know these these sort of uh corporate executive groups that that set these standards and even have voting power to a significant significant degree over what other corporations do so i'd just be interested to see how a lot of this plays out and as people become more aware of how some of this works and realize how um disingenuous it is um it still doesn't um, make clear to me what the like the bottom line always is um, and that might even make it a little more scary to some extent. Yeah. So, so Chick-fil-A is privately held, so they don't have BlackRock forcing them to do this. Right. But what they do have is, I mean, they probably have a lot of bank debt. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, when you go, you know, as an individual, you go buy a house, you've got a credit rating, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, above 800 credit, you'll get a good interest rate. So corporations have a credit rating. Um, and what's happening with the big banks is they actually have an ESG component. Like they assign you an ESG score as a business and that impacts your interest rates. Yeah. So like, to be clear, like there, there might be, I mean, I've heard, I've heard of a case where, um, an oil and gas company CEO was instructed to, uh, to put out some messaging on sustainability and he refused and his debt was uh, made more expensive Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. basically for failing to comply with that. And it was like material. I mean, you're you're talking about, you know, fractions of a percentage point, but when you're talking about, you know, $2 billion of debt, that that's a lot of money. I mean, because all these big corporations are like very tightly financially engineered. So the, the, um, you know, it, it wouldn't shock me if, uh, you know, if, if Chick-fil-A had some debt that, uh, you know, would have been more expensive had they uh, had they not done a DEI officer. Um, yeah. Certainly heard stories of that happening. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Or, or at bare minimum, just the general corporate culture, which is driven by the publicly traded company. I mean, I even see I have a very good friend at a, who's still at a, a very large American law firm. It's certainly not publicly traded. I mean, I think there are publicly traded law firms now, but um, mm-hmm. I think Australia was one of the an Australian firm was one of the first to do that a handful of years ago. But they, um, you know, they maintain very proudly their their you know high credit rating on these indexes you're talking about and publicize that. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, you know, and 
Well, and, and also for them, I mean, so a big, a big law firm, um, your clients are public companies that are right. now, you know, full of uh, BlackRock uh, directors who sit on the boards and, and what have you. Um, so, you know, especially, especially if your practice revolves around public companies, um, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of, you kind of have to do this. I mean, they, they yeah. public, a lot of public companies have policies that require certain diversity on the client service teams that the law firm mm-hmm. provides. So like, you know, you, you literally, if you're trying to get business from there, don't you dare walk into that room with a team of three lawyers, it's all white men. Cause you know, that's right. not going to work. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like they, they literally issue a policy that says, here's the representation mm-hmm. we expect on our legal matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean that, that, that's very common. Um, but, but again, Chick-fil-A, they, they're just a direct to consumer business. They don't, their only real pain point that I can think of is debt financing. And, you know, maybe that's mm-hmm. the lever or maybe to your point, it was just social pressure. Yeah. Well, speaking of levers of power, I don't know if you want to transition to our, our last, uh, last topic Let's, here. You want to transition over to that one? Let's do sure, it. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, Florida. Florida, Florida man strikes again. Florida man bad. And he's, he's struck again. And this time he is, Issued, you know, there's been a sort of a sort of trend. I don't know if we could exactly call it a cascade, but there's a, a growing trend amongst uh, amongst red states to either outright ban or severely restrict um, the the administration of so-called gender affirming care on minors. I think um, just off the top of my head, I just read this other day. I think it's Idaho, Mississippi, Iowa, and one other state prior to Florida that had bans this restrictive. Uh, which are just outright bans of any kind of gender therapy, certainly castration and these you know, more extremes, but even the hormone therapy um, are, are just being banned for minors, regardless of you know parental consent or consideration, um, regardless of what medical professionals are saying. This is you know magistrates taking at the state level their rightful sovereignty to um, rule and and legislate for the the good and welfare of their citizens. Um, I haven't seen you know, a ton of commentary on specifically on the DeSantis law from conservatives yet. But what I find very interesting, um, and we were talking about this before the show started, Josh, that the early commentary from someone like David French, I mean, we've already mentioned him three times in the show. So I guess whoever's got the bingo card that they, they went on that one. But, um, you know, David French wrote probably a month and a half ago about um, the Texas policy and the California law. And California had basically passed a law making, um, effectively making the denial of gender affirming care to minors to be uh, abuse, right? So the, the way that they signaled this was by saying, making themselves a sort of safe haven for parents fleeing other states with their with their child that they're wanting to trans right and the way that they they signaled that this was tantamount to abuse is by saying you can even violate custody orders or arrangements from the state you're fleeing um, when you come into california if it's for the purpose of getting the gender treatment um, and this this is revolutionary and, and presents all kinds of, of constitutional problems um, on the other hand you had texas which did not pass a law at the time, although one has been has been proposed, is my understanding. Um, but uh, A.G. Paxson and then 
Governor Abbott backed him up, simply said that under, uh, by, by advisory opinion, said that under te- pre-existing Texas law, um, CPS, Child Protective Services, could presumptively investigate, um, you know, parents who were administering through the, the health professionals, obviously, uh, gender-affirming care to minors. So this is polar opposites, and both were a little quirky. And I remember David French writing that, you know, this was all a big problem because um, both were violating the rights of parents and that neither was through the legislative process and that he would just prefer you just ban the surgeries altogether. But it, as long as the surgeries were legal in these states, it was ridiculous to punish parents for availing themselves of them. We have problems with that. We can discuss that. But now you have DeSantis doing basically what the David French model. This is what David French wanted. And you'll notice that for the past two weeks, he's preferred to write about his boondoggle in Ukraine rather than talk about, you know, follow up on, on his very strong uh, statements about how the culture war is destroying the Constitution that he wrote about a, a month ago. Um, so I'm curious to see what the commentary is going to be. And maybe you've seen more than I have. Yeah, I have not. I mean, I think that in my part of the world, I think uh, I think that banning gender transition for minors is sort of like par now. You know, right. it's like, oh, great, that's uh, that's like a very baseline, reasonable thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what next? Uh, so, so, like, I think that you know, there hasn't been a ton of acclaim around it. I mean, actually, it's you know, it, DeSantis more often than not in recent months has found himself at the vanguard of like a creative policy or whatever. And this, this mm-hmm. one's coming a little bit late, but I think it's, it's also indicative, you know, keep in mind, I mean, Florida is still, you know, as recently as six years ago, it was a battleground state. Like this is not, mm-hmm. you know, some deep red state. Um, and so the fact that they've been able to pass this in Florida is indicative of uh, very real political momentum and will behind this that you're going to see in a lot of other states. And it's, it's really interesting. It sets up all kinds of like interesting constitutional problems. Um, I mean, even squaring it with like the Bostock decision is hilarious, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then like getting past that, um, you know, I, I think, well, let's just pause there for a second. Like this will get litigated up to the Supreme court. And it's a fascinating question. What will they do? Um, Because I I don't, you know, like, I I don't, I do not see this court. um, I don't see this court striking down like a red state ban on gender, you know, transitions. Um, I also don't see them doing much. It's kind of different on the, on the blue state side because we have a, you know, default towards, you know, state, uh, towards towards liberty, right? So I, I highly doubt that there's any argument that can you know sustain a challenge to a state that allows minor transitions. Although, I mean, arguably, I guess you could advance an argument that um, you probably could advance an argument actually that that uh, allowing children to undergo these procedures is a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment, um, mm-hmm. which you know, may, I mean goals uh would love to see that someday but yeah right. so, so this, this whole like legality like can a state allow this or must they prohibit it can they prohibit it that's an interesting question I, I i think that we have to assume the supreme court will allow a divided situation to continue essentially a situation where um you know we have different regimes in different states okay yeah, yeah. then that sets up like a very gnarly web of um, interstate conflict uh, 
you know, uh, ideas under our constitution. Like, and this is, this is really hairy. I mean, this is a pretty binary issue. Like, you know, in one state, it's going to be criminal to facilitate uh, a a minor transition in another state. It's a, it's a crime to hinder it. It's almost (laughs) like, it's almost more of a binary even than slavery was uh, in the lead up to the civil war. Um, Like it's, it's really tough. I mean, for, for, like, take for example, you know, if, if um, like, I, th- I think it's almost certainly the case if, if like a, you know, parent in Texas, you know, um, flees and is under criminal sanction in Texas and they go to, to California, California will not extradite. Like, let's be clear, that's right. not happening 100%. Right. Or, or on the flip side, um, I like to think if, you know, some parent like a, some crazy activist judge in California tells a parent like, Hey, your kid is getting trans next week, whether you like yeah. it or not. And that parent somehow gets to Texas with their kid. I like to think Texas isn't going to extradite, but right. extradition decisions. Um, you know, that's a, that's a whole field of law that's been like totally sleepy, like since 1860. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, mm-hmm. no, you know, there's, I, I mean, at the Supreme court level, has there been a single extradition case since the slavery days? I, I certainly don't know of one. Certainly not a prominent yeah. one. I, I'm not sure there has no. been one at all. Um, no, some but, nerd will yeah. will like point one out to us on Twitter, but yeah. Yeah, pro- probably. But but um, totally undeveloped, and it's, it's really interesting. There's a ton of uncertainty, um, which, you know, all of which means, I think, like red state governors get aggressive. <laughs> like, right. make right. good law, you know, get out there. Don't ask, ask forgiveness, not permission, you know, uh, right. right. Get out there and do what's just for your people. Well, and that's thing. That's one thing I really want to see, you know, this, this is not a common on like the upcoming presidential election in, in this sense, but what I really want to see is I'm thinking of David Azarad who on, um, on his appearance on, you know, the now, now defunct, uh, Tucker Carlson today, um, though maybe maybe the daytime is returning as well on Twitter. I'm not sure. But David Azarad was on there and he was talking about DeSantis and he was like, you know, of course, I agree with every policy that, that we're all excited about. But it's it's a really sad uh, report that we're, we're very impressed by this guy, that like everything he does, it just blows our minds. It should be par for the course. It should be actually boring. He should be like the least um, aggressive red state governor that should be like the bar and so what i wonder is is for the scenario you're setting up with even you know the extradition issue or you know let's say let's let's say that that the the law in florida other places i should note too that florida was one of the the last states to have sodomy laws that was overturned by by lawrence as well um but let's say that the that actually is challenged at the supreme court successfully you know does he have maybe it's an apocryphal quote but does he have the andrew jackson energy to basically say <laughs> you know the supreme court this is worcester versus you know georgia do, they've made their ruling you know uh this would be Justice Marshall at the yeah. time, supposedly Andrew Jackson said, you know, now he can come and enforce it and yeah. and basically setting up this, you know, it's not an intentional conflict like you're out there between the federal and the, the, the state governments, but it's just an assertion of sovereignty in a certain aggressive way on, um, in this case, maybe not in Worcester, but, but in this case, you would say on a, on a basic moral issue that gets to the very root of anthropology, which is a, a, uh, prerequisite for any kind of sensible governance. Yeah. 
Well, and, and the, yeah, you're referencing, um, that's like departmentalist favorite quote, right? Right. Like departmentalist. <laughs> um, we, you know, yeah. th- this is the view that every, you know, government official has an independent duty of constitutional fidelity and, you know, right. um, and, and they reject judicial supremacy. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and there's a, both a, there's a, both a, um, a federal component to it, right. The various branches. And then there's mm-hmm. also like, a, um, a, there's a component involving the States, I think as well, which is, you know, essentially, um, you know, States are parties to the constitutional bargain and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they also have oaths of fidelity to the U S constitution, um, as they understand it. And as the sovereigns, you know, as the leaders of their sovereign States and, um, I would just say this. I mean, yeah, like as a matter of realpolitik, um, it may be the case that, you know, you're not going to maybe the Supreme Court really will send the National Guard down to make sure that Johnny gets castrated or whatever. But like um, if you don't you need to have a credible threat of that because that's the governor that restrains Supreme Court action. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if mm-hmm. it's, it's good for them to worry about whether you'll comply. Right. Like that's very right. good. We need more of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and as I say, when I say worry about you complying, I'm really I specifically mean they're like red state governors. Yeah. Um, I, I would even I think that I think that red state governor threats of noncompliance have restrained the Biden administration and some of its executive mm-hmm. actions. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's very likely that um, were red state governors more compliant there would have been executive action on AR-15s, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guarantee, like, it, but but the Biden administration undertaking a step like that through executive order would would uh, would would truly, like, I think, initiate a constitutional crisis. And right. you know, they don't. But but see, that threat only works when there's a credible threat of noncompliance. Right. And you right. need to communicate that. Um, red yeah. red state leaders need to communicate that. And to be clear, blue state leaders have been doing that for years now. I mean, with something like sanctuary cities and now with the abortion yeah. safe havens and now with, you know, all these kinds of things, these are subtle and, um, but, but they're effective. So this is not like some outlandish, you know, extremist. They actually think in, in a certain sense, at least in the situation we're in with the current national dynamics, it's actually healthy if you're going to have a federalist policy that there needs to be. Um, some assertion of the legitimate sovereignty of, um, of of really the components that make up the nation. I mean, at, at the founding era, the theory would have been, of course, that the states have this prerogative even for domestic rule that's inherited through the royal charters, and the federal government just doesn't have that. Um, so, and I mean, yeah. you know, this is just like basic, basic Tenth Amendment stuff, but. Um, you know, I do think that's that's very important, and, and red state governors should be encouraged to to be emboldened. And you know, this doesn't mean they have to be uh, searching for conflict. But when the rubber meets the road, um, I'm just very curious to see what several of them do, and if they if they basically have the gumption to kind of uh, pony up and and say, you know, we're not doing that because we know that certain blue state governors certainly do. If you could imagine certain uh, Supreme Court decisions that would thwart their very uh, you know, self-professed ideals that they run on and certainly anger their constituencies, there's no question that they wouldn't comply and they would be lauded Absolutely. for it. Um, so Absolutely. as voters, we need to laud our, our governors for um, equal kind of resistance in a, in a very, again, a very, in a certain sense, a sort of healthy process. This doesn't have to 
um, necessitate violence or anything like that. But there are ways to do this in a, in a proper way that maintains the balance in a federalist polity um, that's very healthy. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before, Timon, but if our country um, is going to survive under its existing constitutional order, mm-hmm. it basically has to be that way. I think right. the only way it continues under our current constitution is if um, the Supreme Court and the federal government just let go of the reins on a lot of mm-hmm. policy and let yeah. the states be sovereigns like they always have been or should have been. Let, um, you know, uh, the, this can be a, a, a release valve for all the pressure that's been building up from the fact that we try to federalize every debate. We try to come up right. with a policy that works for the entire uh, country when um, the country has very divided views. And, you know, look, I mean, having different legal regimes also brings its own set of risks for sure. sure. Like, you know, it, it uh, you know, that was sort of the pre-Civil War setup to some degree. Um, right. But, but uh, it is clear, like, if, if we continue to federalize everything, we're heading for gridlock and clash. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I, I quoted recently in a piece, um, you know, one of the anti-federalist writing and just saying, you know, this was this, no particular policy was even in focus, was just saying the idea that a that a national legislature could effectively pass laws for every state, which which at that time was they were even considered as separate nations um, that is for their good. And, and tailored to their their history, their traditions, their way of way of life is just absurd. So we need something you know that that is going to guarantee that's that the the federal legislating is not overbearing. Not even this isn't even you know some kind of um, uh, I don't know a prideful point or, or or sort of you know just a pie in the sky. It's very practical, and I'm just saying. It, it can't be done. That's that's unfair, actually, to even ask the federal legislatures to do legislator to do that. Um, you yeah. need these things to be tailored by people that are accountable and known by the communities, and a sort of you know for our Catholic friends, you know, subsidiarity or a a, a real hierarchy within a federalist system is is what we have, and it's what's ideal. So I think this is um, to put a positive spin on it as we close. It's that's all we're asking, uh, you know, conservative red state governors to do is to, is to just lean into our polity and the, the parts of it that have atrophied in their, in their muscles to let's start exercising those again. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Like hold, hold your heads high. You're the governors of sovereigns. And uh, that, yeah. like, that's not just me or time in talking. That is literally what our founders thought and what we thought for almost all of our history. I mean, we still even mm-hmm. give lip service to it, right? Even the lefties right. on the court will still say, yes, there's a sense in which the states are sovereigns. Um, so, you know, that means having some self-respect and, and uh, some energy in the role, you know, yeah. be disruptive, um, you know, and you're, you're looking out for the health, safety, and morals of your people. I mean, that's the right. traditional yeah. police powers that in here, to sovereignty that we're not ceded over to the federal government. Like that's your yeah. health, safety and morals. Um, yeah. So it's the exact right, right, you know, forum for, for morals to be addressed. And, and even, you know, outside of these like highly contested debates over, you know, transing the kids or whatever, you can just recognize there's nothing wrong with saying people in Texas are different than people in California and they need different laws to some extent. 
and they need, you know, we need to maintain good relations between the two, but they, they deserve different ways of, of living. Um, it's only, it, it's congruent in, in Texas to legislate a certain way with their, those people and not so in Florida or, Te- or California. And that's just a very basic point of prudent governance. Yep. Yep. Which we'd all do well to remember. Um, right. Very good. Time in. Um, we are running up against the clock here, man. So um, thank you yeah, for joining me today. This is great. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Uh, audience, thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you to our supporters. Um, I don't do this often, but American Reformers is a nonprofit. That means we subsist off of your generosity. Um, so please do consider uh, giving if, if you have not done so before. We, we really value it and it makes possible everything that we do. Um, please check us out, AmericanReformer.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, and wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Uh, rank us, leave a review. That always helps. Uh, thank you and God bless. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.